We're spending the time leading up to Easter studying the book of Proverbs. Uh, I don't know if you've spent much time in this book, uh, but it is a book of wisdom. It's meant to take the foolish and teach them how to live in a wise way. Uh, one of my favorite TV shows was a TV show called The Office. Any fans in the house? So there's a meme circling the internet. A meme for the old heads in the room is a uh, clip from that show where they overlay text to give meaning to something that's kind of a life truth or funny that we experience. So it's taking something that uh, was from that show and using it, and it says the book of Proverbs summed up. And in the meme, Michael Scott comes up to uh, Dwight Schrute and says, what is the greatest thing I've ever taught you? And he looked at, Dwight Schrute looked at Michael Scott and said, don't be an idiot. It changed my life. And then, then they cut They cut to one of the famous conference room solo interviews where Dwight's looking into the camera and he says, I look at something and think to myself, would an idiot do that? And if the answer is yes, I try not to do that. And it says in the meme, the book of Proverbs summed up. <laughs> Essentially, what we have in the book of Proverbs is a king that was known as the wisest king in the land at the time, King Solomon who gathered wisdom literature that he had gotten from his father, King David, and other wise people around him in his council. And then he puts it into a book form under the Holy Spirit so that you and I could learn a way to live wise. It's got lots of wise sayings for living. It's meant to be extremely practical. And most of those wise sayings come from chapter 10 to chapter 29. So we get little one and two line statements that are meant to stick with you so that you, whenever you're about to do something foolish, are reminded of something perhaps wise, and you don't walk in the path of a fool. Chapters 1 to chapter 9 of the book of Proverbs deal with a father's instruction to his son. It's several speeches recorded of a father admonishing his son to not walk in the path of foolishness, but to walk in the way of the wise. Three times are introduced to wisdom. She's referred to as a lady in these nine chapters. And the admonishment of the father is that the son would cherish lady wisdom. That he would learn from wisdom, that he would get understanding of that wisdom, and that as a result of it, he would have a wise life that would not end up in a fool's destination. Every decision you make in your life starts you down a path. That path ultimately will end in a destination of foolishness or glory. Intent would be that you would walk under his shepherding hand in life, leaning on him as your provider, and as a result of it, giving him glory in your end. But for many of us, in various ways, we have walked the path of fools, and we have ended up in foolish destinations that have led to unfruitful things in our life. And so we want to take some time to encourage you to live a life that doesn't end in stupid. And last week, in the week, or excuse me, the last two weeks, we've looked at some truths that we got to, I think, understand if we're going to understand the book of Proverbs. One is, it's easier to see stupid in others than it is to see stupid in ourselves. I can see your stupid more than I can see my stupid, and my stupid always seemed like a good idea before it went stupid. That's some good practical preaching for you. Uh, the second one is you're going to have to, if you're going to live wise, you're going to have to trust the one who is wise. Meaning the first sin in the garden with Adam and Eve was to distrust God. And if you want to live wise, then you've got to come to God who is wise. In fact, we're admonished in the book of James that if we lack wisdom, we're to ask God for wisdom, and he will graciously and, and bountifully give it to those who ask. So wisdom is not something you have or you don't have. 
It's not based on your geography or your family that you're born into as to whether or not you can be or will be wise. Wisdom, from what the Bible would teach, comes from knowing God and walking with God and in that communion, communion with God, growing in wisdom as he teaches as the good shepherd along life's journey and life's path. So if you're not wise, you can be wise. But it will require trust that sometimes what you see as God's way not being the right way will have to be something you surrender to being the way whenever your flesh tells you there's another way that's better. Which has deceived all of us whenever we thought that we were wiser than God. More able to be God than God. More all-knowing than God. Which then ultimately led us down the path of a fool and to foolish destinations. Well, we're going to look at the back half of chapter 3. We're going to look at just a few verses, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 to 32. And as we open up this book uh, to these verses, we're in a, a, a chapter of don'ts. So there's 10 don'ts in Proverbs 3. Uh, admonishments to, if you want to live wise, don't do these things. Chapter 1 of Proverbs has taught us what wisdom is. Chapter 2 of Proverbs teaches us what wisdom does. But it's in chapter 3 that we learn what wisdom does not. And for a lot of us, there's a lot we can learn from the do-nots if we want to be wise. Now the four that we're going to focus on today deal with being a wise and good neighbor. They're the four don'ts of being a good neighbor. If you want to be a good neighbor, don't do these things. Now, whenever I say that to you, the majority of you check out because being a good neighbor was not high on the list of New Year's resolutions. In fact, most of us don't go around thinking, how can I be a better neighbor? How can I be a better neighbor to those that are around me? How can I be a better neighbor at work? How can I be a better neighbor in the house with my closest neighbors, my wife, and my kids? How can I be a good neighbor? See, for the majority of us, we live self-interested, self-focused lives. That's normal. I wake up and I think about what do I want? What do I hope for today? What am I going to aim for today? What am I going to go after today? And it doesn't have much consideration in the thinking of most of my normal days into what does my wife need for that day? Will it be helpful for her that day? Will it be kind and good for her that day? Or my kids? It's just what do I want? And so uh, marriage without Jesus' intervention is two people who are like vacuum cleaners. Both saying give me, give me, give me and no one giving anything. Two people saying, give me, give me, give me, but neither one wanting to give anything to the other person. You've probably never heard marriage illustrated as two vacuum cleaners, but what I'm trying to say in an appropriate church way is, whenever you're focused on yourself, you suck. That's what I'm trying to say, but I didn't want to say that because some of you would be offended, but Easter's coming and we need room. So my my point. My point is you and I have been called to focus on others more than you and I would perhaps want to. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, the religious leaders and law keepers came up to Jesus and they said, what is the greatest and most important part of the law? And Jesus said, well, what have you heard? They say, well, the Ten Commandments. And Jesus then sums the Ten Commandments up in just a few verses when he says this, you are to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is important and like it, you are to love your neighbors as yourself. The entire law is summed up in those words. So what what we are called into if we want to follow Jesus is the kind of faith that loves God above everything. That loves God more than you love you. 
that loves God more than you love your future, that loves God more than you love your talent, that loves God more than you love your self-sufficiency, that loves God more than you love your successes, that loves God more than you love your failures. You see, what made King David a man after God's own heart was not that he was a perfect man, but he was a man that ran at God in spite of his imperfection. You see, a lot of you are hiding. You run from God. You try to make yourself presentable to God. You, in dark, try and clean up a life that cannot be cleaned up in the darkness, and then you run into the light hoping that it looks better than it looked the last time it was in the light. That is not the Christian way. You and I are called to walk in the light because God is light. And in the light, God, seeing all of our imperfections and all of our weaknesses and all of our shortcomings, still receives us, still accepts us, still loves us, still chooses to die for us on our behalf as our substitute and our sacrifice. That is why it's called the gospel. You can be fully known by God and still fully loved by God. That is why it's called grace. But you don't clean your life up in the darkness and then bring yourself before God with a more cleaned up, sanitized version of yourself thinking that it will somehow be more acceptable to God. In the book of Job, there's this creature that comes to and fro out of the darkness and in front of God to present himself to God. His name is Satan. He's the only one that withdraws from God into the darkness and then comes back trying to deceive God in his presence. And for a lot of us, we come into the church house today not willing to admit that we are a wreck in need of God, but instead trying to deceive God into thinking that we are well put together individuals that just need a little bit of a kick, a little bit of a catalyst, a little bit of a boost from God today. Oh, I'm preaching good. So what are we invited into? We're invited into a life that is daily deepening in its dependency on God. Daily becoming a greater treasurer of God. What is the byproduct of a life that is deepening in its dependency on God? What is the byproduct of a life that treasures God rightly? Well, the neighborhood begins to look different. Because the heart of you has changed, therefore the work of God through you now begins to transform the neighborhood around you. We have a one another kind of faith. Being a good neighbor is an essential need if you're going to live a godly life. It's preeminent. It's a priority. If you want to live a life that reflects the glory of God, if you want to live a life that counts before God, then you need to remember that the great commandment calls us on the back half of it to live the kind of life out of love for God that overflows into an impacting love of our neighbor. In fact, the New Testament people didn't get that too well. So 59 unique times in over 100 occurrences, we're told in the New Testament, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way to Revelation, to... Because we're followers of Jesus, do something for one another. 59 unique times we're called to love one another, serve one another, care for one another. You ready for this one? Consider one another. That, that had to be written in Scripture because I, me, not, not you, me, I am inconsiderate of everybody else. Sometimes y'all do stuff, I don't like it. You make my life more frustrating and complex. I don't like you. And so I have to be reminded, consider one another, because I want to kick you. As a pastor, I'm not supposed to confess things like this to you, but here we are. <laughs> it's so easy to live an all-about-me life that we forget that the Christian life is a one-another life. You and I have been called to one another. And if you want to live a good one-another life, if you want to be a good neighbor, then you better pay attention to the four don'ts of Proverbs 3. 
What are the four don'ts? Let's look at them together. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. Do not, or don't, withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to help them. Now, we're going to find the religious bones in all of us because there's some unique things that Proverbs puts within this text that some of you think are a reason for you to justify you copping out on being spirit-led into the work and life that you are living because you read those who deserve it and you think, well, most don't. We'll deal with you. If you can help your neighbor now, don't say, come back tomorrow and then I'll help you. Don't plot, second do not, harm against your neighbor. For those who live nearby, trust you. Don't, third don't, pick a fight without reason. You see, this is where some of you start justifying. You're like, I've never fought a fight that didn't have a reason for fighting it. I only fight fights that have reasons. All right, Tawanda. Fried green tomatoes. We're glad you're here. We're glad that you've only fought just fights. Fights for the glory and the name and the renown of God. And they weren't about your own self-interest. But anyway, I don't start fights. I finish them. All right, we're glad you're here, pumpkin. When no one has done you harm. It goes on to say this, verse 31. Fourth, don't. Don't envy violent people or copy their ways. Such wicked people are detestable to the Lord, but he offers his friendship to the godly. The four don'ts of being a good neighbor, they're, sense, or they're stated in the negative sense. I'm going to reframe them in the positive sense. If you want to be a good neighbor, the wise neighbor will be a helpful neighbor. If you want to be a good neighbor, the wise neighbor will be a helpful neighbor. Verse 27 says, don't withhold good from those who deserve it. When it's within your power, to do so. Don't hold good from your neighbor. So if you want to be a good neighbor, you're going to need to be a helpful neighbor. What does that mean? Well, it means you take what you have and you bless people with it. As an act of worship to God, you worship God with the resource he's given you and you bless others as he puts resource in your hand to do so. It's not a call for you to promise God promissory notes of how you'll bless people if you hit the lottery. A lot of you have a lot of promissory notes you've been writing God about things you will do with resource that you do not already have, all the while overlooking what God has already put in your hand to be an act of worship to him and a blessing to your neighbor. So this is not a text that's calling on you to write a promissory note about a future state in your life where you will be financially or with time adequately supplied with what you need so that you can then be a blessing to your neighbor around you. This is a call for you to look at what's in your hand and to begin to use it as an act of worship to God now and a blessing to your neighbor today. God's not asking you to steward what he's not putting in your hand to steward. But he is asking you to pay attention to what he's putting in your hand as an act and means to steward and worship him with it or an act of dishonoring and not worshiping him with what he has given you and put in your hand. Many people say things in church that we say we believe, but we don't. Let's just be honest. Most of us in church have at one point or another said, everything belongs to... Really? Let's push in on that for some fun. Let's have some fun today. How many of you at some point in your life have said and uttered under your breath, even if you didn't belong, how many of you have said everything belongs to God? Hands raised? Okay. Here we are. Here we are. It's good. It's good. I see that hand. I see that hand. Praise God for that hand. Amen. Amen. What's this text saying? This text is saying God is going to give you things in your hand that are not meant for you. They're meant to be a supply for the ministry that God calls you to so that you can be a blessing to others that are around you. Don't withhold good when it's within your 
ability to do so, to give it. Now, uh, here's the idea. The ESV alternate translation says it this way. Don't withhold good from its owners. That's weird, right? It's like, no, I own it, and I choose to give it if I want to. Not if it all belongs to God, pumpkin. So this is the problem. See, a lot of you are like, the world doesn't deserve it. I earned it. Who gave you breath? Who put together the molecule and the ability for you to exist on this earth? Who's telling your heart to beat right now? Who's numbered the hairs on your head and numbered your steps? You see, you and I have this problem that seeps in in our American culture where we begin to become owners of everything and stewards of nothing, and as a result, we dishonor God and all that we have. For a lot of us, we've been given a lot that's meant to be an act of worship and a blessing to our neighbor, and then we get uncomfortable and think that the pastor's a Democrat because he's up here talking about being a blessing to others. Let me be very clear to you. I do not believe anyone should forcefully take anything from your hand. In fact, God does not forcefully take what he has given you from your hand and force you to use it in a way that's God-honoring and blessing to him. I believe that the United States of America is the greatest democracy and country that man-made people can make. But let me be very clear to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you serve a king before you serve a country. And you represent a kingdom before you represent the United States of America. And you have an allegiance that belongs to that kingdom in the way that you live and act and breathe on earth. Oh, let's push in on the Fox News, glorify God and country people in the room for a minute. See, a lot of us in this room right now have dismissed the need to being spirit-led in our generosity to the least and the broken and our neighbor. Spirit-led, meaning the Holy Spirit determines what we do and when we do it. We don't just walk by and assume that it's not our task. We don't just walk by and assume that it's not something that God would have us do. We don't mindlessly just meet every need that we see as if every need is our responsibility to take on because we're wanting to be our own serviceable Savior and our own superhero. You see, there's a tension here. Some of you, you think that everything and every problem of the world is yours to get your nose up into and you're just straight nosy and there's nothing spirit led about it <laughs> there's another group of us that are in this room that we don't even defer or think that God would actually put something in our hands that could be a means of blessing and ministry to those that are around us so we dismiss the obligation and the opportunity to pray and ask God for wisdom on how we would engage our neighbor. Now notice the text, it says, do not withhold good from those who deserve it, which is a easy way for us to say, well, they don't deserve it, they're where they're at because of their own decisions and choices. So let's apply that now to Jesus' posture towards you. Y'all want to have church or y'all want to play around? Because think about it, if Jesus looking at you went, do they deserve it? Yet or not, I'm not sure he's going to the cross for you. It wasn't about what you deserve. In fact, Jesus takes this a step further whenever he goes in the New Testament in front of a group of uh, uh, Pharisees and leaders and they ask him, who is my neighbor? Essentially, who does this call to loving them and being gracious? Who does this apply to? So Jesus tells them a story of the good Samaritan. Anybody remember this story? The Samaritans ethnically had beef, war. In the words of T. Swizzle, they had bad blood. I shouldn't have done that. They have bad blood. They have bad blood between each other. So much so that Samaria was on a direct path down to Jerusalem. But if you were a Jewish person, you would then walk all the way out here and around Samaria to avoid Samaritans so that you wouldn't have to see them. 
You wouldn't have to be around them. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. It also helps that in that story is Jesus trying to explain what the good Samaritan did, being a good neighbor because he was considering the needs of the person that was in the margins and broken and beaten on the side of the road, that he also puts in a Pharisee and a teacher of the law who was too busy serving God to pay attention to the guy in the gutter. Did the Pharisee do harm to the guy in the gutter? No, not necessarily. But it teaches us something that we need to be mindful of. It's not just the bad that you choose not to do that can be a sin or not a sin to your neighbor. It's the good that you withhold from your neighbor that can also be a sin. Withholding good when you have the ability to do good is a form of sinning against the name of God and the people that he has called you to be a blessing to. So the Pharisee does nothing when he had the ability to do something. He ignores it. This makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't make us excited to hear this kind of preaching. But Ray Ortland, one of my favorite pastors, said, said it this way. If you have a good you can do for somebody, then legally you own it, but morally they own it. The idea is that the, the Holy Spirit is active in ministry, and for most of us, we've stayed in inactive duty for the majority of our living. Every day is a day where the Spirit leads. Therefore, we are open to and looking for the interruptions and the promptings of the Spirit that would invite us into a God moment where we could serve God, where we could be used by God. I wrote it down this way in my notes. When we find a neighbor in need with something we are carrying that God has supplied. Remember, God owns everything. When we find a neighbor in need with something we are carrying that God has supplied, we are invited not commanded, we're invited to use what we have to honor God and bless our neighbor. You want to live wise? You want to be a wise neighbor? Then you've got to begin to actually put action behind the statements that you pontificate in church on Sundays. Which means if everything belongs to God, then that means before you allocate it to your spending... You open your hand over it as a resource for his directing. Before you fill your entire calendar up and use all of your time for what you think is right, you then open the calendar up for his directing. If it all belongs to God, if not, just please stay silent whenever that statement comes up because it's something you may know you should believe, but let's just be honest, for many of us in practice, we do not believe. Essentially, when we possess good and we withhold it, that indifference becomes a discouragement to our neighbor. When you have love that God has given you and you choose not to extend it to your neighbor, that becomes life depleting. When you have kindness that God has given you and it doesn't extend to your neighbor, that becomes discouraging. When you have honor where you recognize the uniqueness and the work of God in someone around you, and you choose not to extend that honor by communicating gratitude to that person, it ends up becoming something that is demeaning and devaluing to the person around you. If you want to be a good neighbor, you've got to be a helpful neighbor, number one. Number two, if you want to be a good neighbor, verse 29 teaches us, you've got to be a trustworthy neighbor. Verse 29 says, don't plot harm against your neighbor. For those who live nearby you, trust you. What is the most essential character trait? 
of any relationship. It's trust. You're going to get in a car today, crank it, and you're going to trust strangers in two-ton vehicles to pay attention to the road. That is a measure of trust you extend. And I've seen some of you drive. That's a lot of trust. No marriage can function in the absence of trust. Trust is required for there to be a healthy relationship. And your marriage, the person you're married to, is your closest neighbor. Right? Your closest neighbor is your spouse. But if you do not trust your spouse, then every waking moment of that relationship becomes torturous. Because your mind races at the betrayal that you assume they are doing, that they may not be doing, that never gives them the benefit of the doubt in anything that they are doing. So there's a paranoia that begins to set into the relationship, all because there's an absence of trust in the marriage. Many of you have kids that have given you plenty of reason not to trust them. That's what kids do. But your second closest neighbor is your children. But if you do not have any trust for God's work in your kid's life, then you'll try to control your kid's life because ultimately you don't trust God. And in the lack of trust of God, you then try to control your kid's life, which then pushes your kid not only away from you, but away from God. But trusting in God leads us into the ability of trusting in our neighbor. In fact, before we're called to trust or be a trustworthy neighbor, we're told in Proverbs 3, 5, that we are to trust in God and lean not on our own understanding and all our ways acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. So we're called, before we ever get to the don'ts of being a good or a bad neighbor, we're, we're called to trust God without reservation. When you have a reservation in your trust of God, you only have cynicism and skepticism in your heart towards men. Everybody's out to hurt you and nobody's in control. But when you trust God in his sovereignty, when you trust God in his working, though you will go through hardship, though there will be a time that God at times allows evil to have a moment in a day, you will go through experiences where bad things happen to good people. But when you keep your trust in God, it will enable you to find hope in a dark time. It will enable you to be a messenger of peace in a broken world of restlessness. This is what the text is inviting us to. Don't plot the harm. Don't sit around thinking about the demise of your neighbor. Instead, remember that they trust you. You see, this text is a call for you not to be the kind of neighbor that consistently looks for the negative in your neighbor. So you and I, we, we have an opportunity to see and be accountants of each other's faults or of each other's good work of God in our life. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3 that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there are times where I see Christ in Morgan, at work in her character, in her conduct. Today we're going to celebrate a student that my wife has a relationship with, and that's led to a conversation, several conversations, where she's going to get baptized in just a few moments whenever I shut up and move on. And, and I've seen Jesus at work in my wife at Hillcrest. Is Hillcrest a godly place where godly things are happening all the time? Nah, it ain't. It, it's, it's dark. It's bleak. Uh, you know, there's more vapes than Bibles. Like, like there's, there's a, <laughs> that's a true statement. Like, like we got a vape pandemic going on. Uh, is, is Malden any better for some people that may be looking at me about how Malden's better? Uh, no, it is not better. Uh, <laughs> 
my, my, my point is, God is at work. And I could sit there and write down the negatives of what's not going right, or I could pay attention to the work of God that's bringing righteous things out of unrighteous beings, which is what God does. I never will forget I had a guy that would come to church and sit in my sermons just to take notes of the mistakes I made. Imagine you could be experiencing the community of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, or you could just sit on the back row and write down every gaffe I have in a sermon. And so this guy made it his ambition to catch mistakes that I made. And, and can I tell you the miracle of what happened? Like after like months of this, he came to me and said, I can't find a mistake. And I went, well, that must be God. Because, I mean, I said, suck. I said, I mean, I didn't just start recounting like all the things that I did that could you could have got me. And you're telling me after sitting there trying to scrutinize me that God blinded you to that. Like it was an incredible moment. So here, here's my point. Don't be the fault finder or the fault keeper of your neighbor's mistakes. Be the gospel speaker. Be the life giver. Be a trustworthy neighbor. Uh, that doesn't promote the demise of your neighbor, but helps your neighbor in their mistakes and in their shortcomings. Your neighbor trusts you, so don't plot harm against them. If you want to be a good neighbor, you've got to be a trustworthy neighbor. Number three, if you want to be a good neighbor, you've got to be a peacemaking neighbor. Let's move a little bit here. You've got to be a peacemaking neighbor. There is a call and a need for the Christian to fight. And there is a call and a need for the Christian to make peace. These two things seem like they're in contradiction to each other, but they actually complement each other. The moment you became a believer, you understand this dynamic. Within you, you have two things warring. You have grace and flesh. And they're in constant fight, and there is a peace that surpasses understanding that's in that fight. So this weird combination is going on inside of you as a follower of God. His grace is there, and your flesh is still there. And some days your flesh, it, it looks loud, and it looks like it's beating everything up. But the problem is, you're no longer under the law. Therefore, on your bad days, whenever the law would condemn you, grace comes over the top of it and forgives you. Huh. This is the goodness of the cross. This is the goodness of the gospel. So it's a war that you're facing that allows for there to be peace, even in the midst of war. Paul says at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. So there is a faith fight that you and I are to fight for. In fact, we're called in the book of Romans to fight against temptation. So, so the Bible is not passive, but the Bible is clear that we're not to get into tertiary, there's the word, secondary, minor arguments and fights, which is where the majority of our arguing comes from. Look at what the book of James says about this. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, it says this, what is causing quarrels and fights amongst you? Is it not from the evil desires at war within you? How many of you right now are in a fight that is just stupid? You came into church in a stupid fight. And the only reason you're still in it is because neither one of you want to say, you know what, this is stupid. So instead you have a cold war that's broken out. I never will forget... <laughs> I, I met a family that came in for counsel because they had not had Christmas with their family in 10 years. And the reason they had not had Christmas in 10 years was that someone in that family got mad at them for not saying Merry Christmas to them one year. So they now do not get together as a family because the Christmas greeting one year didn't extend. Can, say it with me. 
That's stupid. One, two, three. That's stupid. Are you kidding me? A decade of Christmases because you forgot to give a warm greeting to one. And, and, and here's the thing. You can look at me like, well, they're stupid. They should, that's just dumb. They know I'm at Merry Christmas. Or you could just say, you know what? Christ has forgiven so much more. Let me lead in the repentance process. I am sorry. It is such a water on a fire that's burning whenever you lead with I am sorry. Husbands, practice it with me. You ready? One, two, three. I am sorry. One more time, just in case you didn't get into it. Ready, husbands? This is a tool, a useful tool into having a happier marriage. It's not just happy wife, happy life. It's sometimes a mature husband that leads to a happy family and a happy life. And if you're going to be a mature husband, you're going to have to learn these really cool words. You ready? One, two, three. I am Man. Oh, wives, you shouldn't have clapped. You're on deck. You ready? It's a really cool thing. It's going to transform your marriage. It's going to make him feel respected. It's going to open up opportunities for you to get what you've been wanting out of him. Words. You ready? One, two, three. I. Man, what a revolutionary thought. These weird quarrels, these weird fights that come from your own self-interest. You don't have what you want, so you are at war with others. You can't get it, so you fight and wage war and take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God. You can't have peace with others when you don't have peace with God. And when you don't believe that God is your ultimate provider, you go and look to others to be your God as your provider. And they cannot be that. There's a need for us to discern intent. In the Bible, it's called commission omission. Commission is, I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. Let me go ahead and tell you, every single one of you at various times in your life knew something was wrong and you did it anyway. That's the sin of commission. There's another sin called omission. Omission is, I didn't know it was wrong, but it still was wrong and I did it by mistake. We deal with those things very differently, don't we? Right? The call for us, though, is to be peacemaking neighbors. Number three, if you want to be a wise neighbor, be a peacemaking neighbor. Number four, the wise neighbor is a gentle neighbor, a gentle neighbor. Neighbor, this was not my favorite point to preach. It's why I left myself no time to preach it. The text says this in verse 31. The Lord curses the house of, or excuse me, that was verse 33. Do not uh, envy or don't envy violent people or copy their ways. What does that mean? Uh, it means that you and I are to be gentle and not evil. Why do I use the word gentle? Well, if you look up the word evil and you type in synonym or, uh, yeah, synonym's right, right? The word's opposite, antonym. Senta. Sin the same. Anta's opposite. Praise God. So, I got it right, though. You type in the word violent or uh, evil, and you look at what the opposite is. I got two options in our American language that are given to me on my Google search. You may find more. Here's what I found. You ready? The two options are gentle or weak. So, you can be evil or you can be gentle or weak. Is there anything more American? Then here's your options. Be evil or you can be gentle or weak. Now, here's the problem. Most of us hear the word gentle, and we see that as a vice. But Jesus preached a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and in it, he called for gentleness, and he explains it as a virtue. And if you and I want to be good neighbors, as people who are getting baptized are going to get changed and get ready to do it, if you and I want to be good neighbors, 
then there has to be a gentleness that we lead with in our neighbor, to our neighbor. Who's your closest neighbor if you're married? What would it look like for you to lead, not with evil, but gentleness? Not with assumptions, but empathy and understanding. Now I get it. For some of you are like, well, they're not empathetic to me. They're not understanding to me. They're not gentle to me. Here's the good news. Your source of how you treat your neighbor does not start with your neighbor. Remember the great commandment we talked about in the beginning of the sermon? That's where it starts. I don't go to my neighbor to then figure out how I'm going to treat them. I go to my God. I love my God. I serve my God. I walk with my God. He then within me gives me what I need for every good Some of you have a marriage that has and needs work. You've got a good work ahead of you. Some of you have kids, and you've got parenting that's going to require some work. You've got good work ahead of you. My question to you as I close the sermon is, are you going to go to your kids to find what they're worthy of you giving them? Or are you going to go to your God so that you can give them what only He can give them through you? See, you and I have been called to be a good neighbor. But if we're going to be a good neighbor, a wise neighbor, we've got to be trusting. We've got to be a peacemaker. We've got to be gentle. So what does it look like this week? For with your closest neighbor, if you're married in the room, for you to be a good neighbor and just a little bit more gentle. For you to be a good neighbor and for you to be a peacemaker instead of a fight picker. (laughs) Oh, it's so practical. You might actually do something with this sermon. It's the book of Proverbs. What would it look like for you to build people up instead of tear people down? Well, you would look wise. It would look like God's kingdom coming to earth and working through you. I want to invite you into that today. Our prayer team is going to come forward. Our people that are getting baptized are getting ready in the back, and they'll be out in just a second for us to close service and celebrate with them. But this is your moment. If you do not have a relationship with the Lord, we would invite you to come forward and talk to our prayer team. And today, start a relationship with Christ. If you're withholding good from your neighbor because they've not earned it, let me remind you that God has withheld no good thing from you, and you've earned none of it. Therefore, now in grace, do to others the way that God has done to you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's respond.